I am smart enough to know that you need to bring in some really smart people to work with you. And for anybody who who desires to open a business or desires to be an entrepreneur, if you ever think that you have to be the smartest person in the room, you're sorely mistaken. Welcome back to the Venturing Out Podcast. This is the second part of our three-episode series with Denisha Blount. If you haven't listened to her last episode, go and give it a listen to hear about the origin story of Oh My Juice. This episode, we will continue to dive into Denisha's experience along the way. Thanks again for coming back. You know, you talked about making those crucial business decisions, and I know as a frequent customer of OMJ myself, you guys expanded your menu into even foods. Your hummus and pita is my absolute favorite hummus and pita that I've ever had. So, so good. Um, So tell me, how did you decide, you know, how frequently do you add things to your menu? How did you decide to go into that food more, bring that in? And then where did you get your ingredients? What did that process look like? So the the idea of bringing food in was a very deliberate one. Um, you have to, when you're doing whole food smoothies, whole food acai bowls, and what I mean by whole food is this. So we juice our own juice. We, we juice our own apple juice. Um, you know, we don't juice our own, own coconut water, things like that. It's it's too difficult to do that. But um, so the foundation is 100% fruit. So it's, you know, apple juice that we juice in our own store. There's no sugars added. There's nothing added to it. It's just apple juice. And then we throw in pineapple, mango, whatever it is. And we throw in a blend of frozen fruit and we don't put ice. So that's really what distinguishes us from somebody like, you know, somebody like a a Jamba Juice or a Smoothie King or a um, a Nectar or somebody like that. They all add ice. That's what that's what is is the base that freezes the the smoothie or the acai bowl or whatever it might be. And because of that, the costs go up. Ice is cheap. And water's cheap and some some you know big big franchises use water as a base water's cheap well we are not doing that so obviously our product is not cheap to make and so a lot of times we the food items we bring in other items that counterbalance that expense it's cheaper for us to make um, it's cheaper for us to um, maybe get it supplied by somebody else. Our pita, for example, comes from uh, Homestead Heritage, the bakery at Homestead mm-hmm. Heritage. And so it's cheaper for us to supply it that way. And then our margins are bigger. And they kind of offset our margins on other things that aren't quite as large. And that was really kind of the impetus behind bringing in some food 
bringing in some things that had a um, had a, a smaller cost and a bigger margin that so everything would kind of balance out. So our average margins right now are sitting at about 52%, but we have to we have to do that, you know, so we we balance it. This might have a, a margin of 20%, this has a margin of 72, you know, and but ultimately the average margins about about 52%. So so it's just it's a um, it's strategic. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be strategic in order to make money. You have to, you have to be strategic. So, I don't know if we've already talked about it, but let's talk about. Um, let's talk challenges. about your ultimate goals of OMJ. What are they? How did you plan to achieve them? Okay, so the ultimate goal is to someday be a corporation with franchises. Mm -hmm. um, I have. I have a friend who started a large, he started it from the ground up, but he's franchised 450 of his stores. And he comes into OMJ all the time. He, he tells me that they plan their trip around OMJ. So they were their first stop and their last stop as they leave town. And he has somehow told me that I have developed the perfect franchisable model. So as I say that, let me just preface that with, you know, even though I get a lot of the recognition, I have a whole team of people <laughs> underneath me who have really developed the perfect franchisable model. It, um, it actually wasn't me. Um, I am smart enough to know that you need to bring in some really smart people to work with you. And for anybody who, who desires to open a business or desires to be an entrepreneur, if you ever think that you have to be the smartest person in the room, you're sorely mistaken. And you're only limited to what you know. And so for me, um, I brought in people around me. I the the very first thing I did was bring in a fantastic GM and um, the first thing she did is she cut my labor costs by almost 20 percent it was incredible and she did that strictly through implementing systems some very important systems up until that point it was like oh you want to make it that way go ahead and make it that way <laughs> oh you know okay you know because um, along with being kind of a, a crunchy optimist, I'm also a big fat marshmallow and I don't like confrontation at all. And so it was like, oh, okay. So you don't want to measure things out. Okay. Well, oh, I'm okay. You know, whatever. And I brought in, um, a GM who was like, no, we're not doing it that way. We're doing it this way because, if we do it this way, every the, the product's consistent, which is important. And we're doing it this way because everybody's going to do know how to do it. We can train it the same way. It doesn't matter who's in here. All the same, the product's going to be the same all the time. But we can do it with two people instead of five. 
That's huge. And once, I mean, my labor costs diminished immediately. And so once, when I cut my labor costs by 20%, you know, then I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a believer, you know, I'm a believer in these systems. I'm a believer in all of these things. And so she came in, she was kind of the start of it. And then I, I brought in other people and, um, you know, assistant managers who are now managers or, and they have taught me the importance of organization when you're just, when you are somebody who, who loves ad adventure, I fly by the seat of my pants, lists are not my things, you know, I, do, I don't sit and make a list every day. And so, you know, I get to the store and it's like, oh, did you get spinach? Oh, I forgot it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, so sometimes you have to train your brain, no matter what you are on the Enneagram scale or no matter how you, you generally lead your life. And, and I think there's a lot to the way I lead my life that's valuable. You know, I think, I think it's important to not stress too much over small things. You know, I think it's, I think it's important to be passionate about learning. You know, those things, I, I think there's a lot about the way I lead my life that's, that's important, but I think it's also important that as an owner, I actually have to train my brain to do something different. I have to train my brain to see the details. I have to train myself, you know, so my manager who I brought in um, underneath my GM, uh, she was, she's the one who's like, you have to make a list. You have to have a, an inventory list. You have to have these things. You can't show up one day and say, oh yeah, we have PETA and hummus. How many times have you come in and I'm oh, sorry, we don't have that today. Mm -hmm. You know, people will grant you some grace for a small amount of time, but ultimately they expect you to figure it out. And then they kind of lose patience with you. You know, you keep coming in. And it's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I don't have that today. I forgot it. You know, it's just not, it's not professional. Mm -hmm. And so no matter where you are and how, what, your, what your personality is or how you, you view life or whatever, there are things about business that require you to be organized, to be attentive to detail, to, and it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me every single day because that's not who I am naturally. And so um, before bed, you know, they tell, they, they say all the time, people who make lists before bed are way more successful. So <laughs> what do I do before bed every night? I make a list of everything I need the next day, everything I need to, where it needs to go. And I mean, I make a very detailed list. I hate it. I actually despise it. It's the worst part of my day, but it has made a huge difference in the way that we conduct business. And so there, sometimes there are just things that you have to do to mm -hmm. make your business better. And that's what I mean by knowledge is power. When I said it at the beginning, it's true. Knowledge is power, but knowledge is only power if you implement the knowledge. I mean, I can, I can say all day that people who make a list before bed are, are more successful. 
but if I don't make a list before bed, it's not really power then to me, is it? It's just knowledge. And so for me, I've had to actually implement the knowledge and to do the things that require me to be a better business person. And so that's kind of my ultimate goal is what we were talking about. And I went down that rabbit hole, sorry. Um, but my ultimate goal is to have franchises. Um, right now we're opening our second location in Waco. And we are going to be out um, on the intersection of Highway 6 and 84. So we're where Nightlight Donuts, the Camp Lees, mm -hmm. we're more hopefully going to hit more of the Woodway um, demographic. So we're really excited about that location. We have already talked to a developer in Austin who's developing a, a um, I don't know exactly what it's called, but park, right? it's, it's yeah. a place where there's only going to be like local artisan type businesses. It's not going to be, there's not going to be any big box stores there. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be more local, more, um, just can't think of the word right now, what it, what it would be called, but it's, um, it's really exciting concept and it's in a great location. Yeah. So that's, that's the next two years. And then beyond that, I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully one day, maybe be on Baylor campus somewhere. And because uh, I'm, I'm a diehard Baylor bear forever. So mm -hmm. I would, I would love to be there. Yeah. I'm sure we'd love to have you too. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, I Erica. I know, Erica. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting yes. spoiled temporarily with you being here. But when does that end, by the way? Uh, tomorrow. Sadly. Oh my gosh, well, we gotta go. We're going yes. right. Up. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> tomorrow. But um, hopefully, we'll have other opportunities. And yeah, but um, we'll see. We'll see what we're we're open to. Whatever the Lord whatever doors the Lord opens for us, we're, we're good with that. And, um, but right now it seems like, um, Woodway and then possibly Austin. Very so, cool. Yeah. So as you look to franchise, um, in Waco and beyond, what are some challenges that you are anticipating you'll face along the way and how are you going to overcome those? Uh, so, um, as my friend Joe says that when you have more than one location, it takes a whole different skill set. So right now, I, you know, I don't know how much you guys know, but we actually flooded downtown. So we're, that's why we're on Baylor campus to begin with, um, because our downtown location is closed for renovations. And um, we have so we have the Baylor location and then we have a commissary kitchen where we're doing all of our juicing. Mm -hmm. He he's not lying. It takes a whole different skill set. And so when you have one location, you are able to get into kind of this groove. It's like clockwork every day. You begin to anticipate, you know what's coming, you you know what's um what's expected of you. 
even with one location in a commissary kitchen, it is eating my sack lunch, just to put it mildly. It's to, you have to suddenly work out logistics for two separate locations. Even though one of them is not serving customers, you still have to work out the logistics of your trucks, ordering, getting your orders in on time, you, you know, all of, it becomes this crazy kind of merry-go-round of, oh my gosh, I forgot, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, you have two competing things that are, are vying for your attention. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's, that's very difficult, I think probably the most difficult thing for any entrepreneur is you have to hire people you can trust and you have to trust them. So for the Baylor location, it's been almost entirely, I've, I've had to turn it, you know, for years I've had a GM and I've had managers and I've had assistant managers and I've always been there mm-hmm. every single day <laughs> because I'm it's fine. my baby. <laughs> and now with two locations, you really have to, do I trust this person? And um, I do, I, I trust my managers and I, I trust my employees and they're doing a fantastic job at Baylor. And so, but think about my next thing is now I'm going to have a location out at Woodway and I'm going to have a location downtown. I'm not sure I have somebody in the queue. I think I do, but I'm not sure I have that person in the queue yet that I trust like I trust this person, you know? And so I think the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is letting go of your baby. It's like the first day of kindergarten. It's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) my baby's leaving me. And it's, it's very difficult. And so you're trusting them. You're just, you're not just trusting them with the quality of your product. You're trusting them with good customer service. You're trusting them with a budget that behind the scenes, we're like, okay, this is your labor budget. This is your food budget. You have to stay within that budget because if they don't, guess what? I still have to pay the bill. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of trust that goes into turning a location over to somebody. And so I think for me, that's the hardest part. Um, and then because logistically, I've discovered that I can't do it all by myself. There's just not enough hours in the day. There's not enough days in the week. You can't do it all by yourself. You have to trust people. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's really, it's like turning your kid over to somebody and saying, oh, it's all yours. But yeah. Um, So I'm anticipating that being difficult. Um. But I think probably, and this is what I've been told more than what I've actually experienced, um, quality control. The further you get away from your concentric center, quality control becomes an issue. And so, you know, here's, here's a solid example. I came from Fayetteville, Georgia, Peachtree City, which is in Fayette County, Georgia. It's where all the Cathy's live from from Chick-fil-A. And so um, all the Chick-fil-A's in Fayette County 
are like on point. I'm not even kidding. You walk in, there's never a misstep ever because any one of the Kathy's could walk in at any particular time. All of them are on point. And so, you know, we came to Waco and we went to Chick-fil-A and we waited 45 minutes in the drive-thru. And I was like, oh my gosh, the Kathy's never come here. <laughs> and I'm like, it wasn't that the food was bad. It's just that the whole kind of overall experience that you're used to in Fayette County, you're not getting in Waco, Texas. And so for, for me, it was kind of an eye-opener and it's something that we just really have to, and that's why I'm taking expansion so very slowly. Um, you know, I, I really admire the Cathy's. I've done a lot of study on the Cathy's and how they grew. He waited 43 years. Not, that may not be right, but it was a long time. He waited a long, long time. I'm almost sure that it's 43 years to open his first franchise. Now they're the fastest growing franchise in, in America. Um, but he waited 43 years. And I think there was a reason for that. I, I think trying to get into a hurry to, to expand and, you know, I may be dead and gone and it may amount to nothing, who knows, but, but I think you have to be careful because you could easily lose sight and of what you're trying to accomplish, number one, but you could also lose control of your quality control really easily. And I'm not sure I have an answer to that yet. It's, it's kind of a, we're gonna have to figure it out and learn it as we, go, as we grow. So you said, I mean, you're spending a lot of the time, that's just one of my thoughts, a lot of your time at location one, and as yes. you expand, I mean, would yes. you consider transitioning to location two for a duration to ensure that they understand the foundation of how you operate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I'm sure you've considered that. And ultimately, my goal is to hire a trainer Mm. to move from location to location to location to ensure that the quality is, and, you know, even if it's, um, again, I'm copying, absolutely copying Chick-fil-A, but that's what Chick-fil-A does. They send a trainer who stays there for anywhere from six six months to a year, and they help through the entire startup, the entire hiring process, training process, everything. And what they're ultimately doing is training those operators. This yeah. is what we want it to look like. This is how we want people to act. This is what we want the quality of our food to, to be. And so ultimately, as I open more locations, hopefully by the time we get down to Austin, we'll have an actual trainer who comes in and says, this is what it's going to look like. And I'm staying here until it looks like this. And then it needs to stay that way. And so um, so that's kind of the goal. But yes, right now I'm, I'm that person. So um, I actually have my, my manager from the downtown location. The, the downtown location really runs like clockwork. So I have an assistant manager down there who will probably become the manager. And I can keep checking in on that location 
and then my manager's moving to the new location. So I intend to go out there, help her get things up and going, started, and then kind of expand from there. But yes. Right. And part of the reason we chose Waco was so that we could have that quality control so that we can say, I can go back to the downtown location and I can go out to Woodway. It's only, you know, five miles, whatever. And learn from that experience first before I start expanding beyond Waco. Right. So as we talked about before, you didn't have a background in business. You came from education. You came from being a full-time mom, student, undergrad and grad. How did it feel to take that leap of faith into the business world? Were you ever scared? I mean, were there days that you just, you're full of doubt, days that you wanted to quit? Always. How did Um, it feel and how did you overcome that feeling? For me, and I do realize that not everybody has my mindset, but for me, the sun's going to come out tomorrow no matter what. Mm -hmm. No matter what mistake I make, no matter what, you know, it's not out today, but, you know, um, it's somewhere out there. And for me, mistakes are short can be short-lived mm-hmm. um but again i i really go back to my educational background i want to know as much as i possibly can know and sometimes sometimes making mistakes is that education education isn't always book learning and you know when you become a teacher it's all theoretical until you get into the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can learn how to handle a disruptive child until you get in the classroom and figure out that that doesn't work, you know? And then you have to figure out something else. Sometimes the actual experience is the education. And so, you know, you can read a lot of books about business and a lot of it's theoretical until you actually get into business. And so for me, sometimes the best teachers are the people who've actually been in business. You know, I've opened my doors to a lot of young entrepreneurs who, who want to ask questions, who, you know, who want somebody who can help mentor them because some of that best education is just simply from coming from somebody who's actually done it. Have I outspent my budget? Yes. And the sun still came up the next day. (laughs) Have I gotten myself into some debt? Yes, I have done that. Um, Have I made mistakes with my employees? Absolutely. Have I, you know, have I forgotten to order things? Have I, you know, I, every mistake you can possibly make in business, I have made. I have probably spent $50,000 on things that I don't need, didn't ever use, thought it was a good idea. What, I mean, ridiculous. And, but sometimes, um, you know, when I was young, my dad used to say, you are so hardheaded. And um, yeah, when you're in business, it's not really a good quality to be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good quality to be firm like moving forward and like, I'm going to do this. I'm excited about doing this. But when people tell you something, really take it into account and listen. Um, 
I've, I've spent a lot of money on things that I, I didn't need and didn't ever use and sat in my back room until I gave it to Goodwill or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, the whole point is that sometimes the experience is the education and sometimes that's what it takes. But I share this all the time and I don't know if this is a true fact or not, but I did read it one time. Um, they say that about only 2% of small businesses make it past five years. But they say that of those 2%, about 98% of those 2% make it and flourish in business. So that just tells me that a lot of times business is just about perseverance, about fortitude, about just keeping it moving. Even when, the, even when it gets rough, even when you make mistakes, you know, whatever it is, sometimes it's just about fortitude. You know, I, we made it all the way through COVID and I kept thinking, oh, we're not doing too bad. And I just looked at my numbers yesterday and was like, oh my gosh, it was terrible, but mm. we made it. And then, you know, we flooded and, and it's, it's like, oh, you know, oh my goodness, it's, Again, it's terrible, but something good has come out of it. So sometimes I think just that that those 2% of people that make it make it past five years, it's 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 not it it is about learning and growing and being better all the time, but it's also about just pushing forward, even when times are really tough. Right. So the origin of OMJ, you discovered it through your own personal education because you had to change your diet. Yes. You have, I mean, realistically, you have no duty to help anybody else besides yourself. Um, you could have committed yourself to maintaining your diet, but you took a leap of faith and you decided that you wanted to do this for others. Why? Um when you when you're suffering and um i mean i would quantify my suffering you know i felt like i was suffering but you know i've also seen the suffering of other people that is far worse than mine and you would do almost anything at all to change that and when people come to you and they say oh my gosh, I saw that, that it changed you. How can I, how can I change it for me? It's like, why, why would you keep that to yourself? You know, and not everybody, not everybody buys in. And a lot of people are like I was before, you know, with my crunchy friend in Georgia, you know, she was like, she had been telling me for five years, if I would just if I would change what I ate and I would go over to her house and we'd have this long conversation and she'd, all she'd talk about is food. And, and I would sit there and pretend to listen and go, Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds really great. And then I'd go home and go, Oh my gosh, she's so weird. <laughs> I love her, but she's so weird. <laughs> and, um, I wasn't really open to that until I started suffering and then then something that I did with food changed my entire life. It changed everything about 
how, you know, what I was able to do, how I was able to travel, the energy that I had, you know, I think most people have this concept. So, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm almost 60 years old. And so I think most people think, you know, when you hit 40, 50, you know, it's a natural part of the aging process to have arthritis, to, you know, be on medication, to, you know, all of these things. It's we have trained people in America that that's a natural part of the aging process when really it's a byproduct of the food that we're eating. And, you know, in this day and age, people are starting young on medication. You know, the, the instances of juvenile diabetes has gone off the, off the charts. You know, our, our instances of juvenile diabetes have, have increased 500% since I was a child. I never knew anybody. If you knew anybody as a, as a child who had diabetes, yeah, you were, you were in the, the true minority. I mean, nobody, nobody knew anybody who was diabetic. And if you knew anybody who was even really on Ritalin or any kind of ADD medication, that was maybe one person in a hundred. Today, one in two, one in three, something like that. It's crazy. We've got all these people on some sort of Wellbutrin, you know, um, Ritalin or something to control their, their impulse. And I've actually seen it. So as a teacher who taught children with learning disabilities, I actually taught a child who was taken out of school as a kindergartner, he had Tourette syndrome. And he was taken out of, a, as, out of school as, um, as a kindergartner because he was unable to control the, the curse words that came out of his mouth, you know, whatever. And so when I went in and talked to his mom, the very first thing I said was, look, I think you should change his diet. I think you should get rid of all the red dyes. I think, you know, sugars, I think you should change his diet. He didn't go vegan, but they went to almost 100% grass-fed, you know, all of these things. By the end of his kindergarten year, you couldn't even tell he had Tourette's. He would blink his eyes a few times. And he went back to school and is healthy, happy, learning in school, and it all changed. And, you know, and Tourette's is autoimmune, but it all changed because of his diet. And so I can tell you story after story after story after story of people like that. And not everybody's going to buy in, but if it can be life changing. And if I have even, you know, one one hundredth of one percent of knowledge that could help you change your life. Why wouldn't I share that? To me, it's important. It's 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 my one. Other than my family and the Lord, it's my one greatest passion in life. And I just, I'll tell anybody who listens. And people get tired of listening sometimes, but but I still tell them. <laughs> Well, I think that that passion and that goal that you have to help others is so incredible. 
and um, it really comes through when you're talking about it. So I think that's so awesome. But I want to talk about how, you know, from the start, how you made that passion possible with OMJ, how you really took it off the ground. Um, And a lot of entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs, struggle with starting with capital or starting with funds or, or getting those funds or having someone to invest in them with, you know, in their idea. So tell me how, what kind of capital did you start with? How did you get the funding that you needed? What did that look like? So um, I was very fortunate in that um, I had what I call the Bank of Norris. He's my husband. And my husband actually helped finance me. But I do know that that's not possible for everybody. But today there's all kinds of opportunities to crowdfund. There's Akiva Loan, um, which is actually getting your friends to invest, you know, five, 10, $15 at a time. There's, there's, um, and I can't remember all the names of them, but there's, there's several funding sources like that. You see a lot of small businesses today start a GoFundMe account. And you know, there's no shame in, in telling people about your passion and then having people help you fund it. Um, there's, there's a, um, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it, but I have a friend in Austin who is trying to fund his brewery by, he, um, it's a, it's a, you have 30 days and you, you give your spiel to all your friends, strangers, whoever, and if they buy in, they can, they can give you money for 30 days. And if you collect money in 30 days, then you get to keep all that money. And so there are lots of creative ways to establish capital. The other thing that you can do is you don't have to have the whole thing at once. I started at the farmer's market. Um, so I made my, my biggest investment in my juicer and then I went to the farmer's market and I made money and I saved money. And I, um, you know, I started from there. There's no shame in starting small and starting with maybe a food truck or starting at the farmer's market, or you don't have to start and have everything at once. So even when I went into the storefront um, and we started looking at numbers for a build out, I didn't get everything I wanted in a build out because I had to stay within a budget. And so now that we've been destroyed by a flood and we're we're six years in now I'm getting the build out that I wanted at the beginning that I didn't have the money for at the beginning and so I think you have to think about it in terms of we really live in an instantaneous society but sometimes we have to um, put off that put off that um, everything I want, I have to have now men- mentality, or it's just not going to work for me. I have seen the fastest growing juice bars in California go under 
go bankrupt. They had 10 million in investments and they went bankrupt because they wanted everything right now. And they tried to accomplish that goal right now. And they ultimately, two years later, went bankrupt. And they had $10 million behind them. And so I think it's important to, it's not actually how much money you have. Sometimes it's about how you use your resources. So there's lots of resources out there for young entrepreneurs. Um, there's lots of opportunities to crowdfund. And I think for, for people that don't have a source, I'm a lot older than a lot of entrepreneurs. So, you know, I had, I had a, a, a husband and a bank account behind me that some people don't have, but that's okay. Because there are people out there who will believe in your idea and who will help you crowd, crowdfund and will get you, get you to a starting point but I think it's also important to know that you don't have to have the whole thing at once. Start small. Start, start with a tent at the, at the farmer's market. Tents are cheap. Tables are cheap. And just do your product there and then move to, oh, maybe I've got a, if it's a restaurant, maybe a food truck. If it's something different, um, there are, sometimes maybe it's just a, uh, like we use a commissary kitchen, but I do know that there are, there are people around Waco, particularly, who will rent out small spaces in their, you know, we have office sharing, but we also have um, space sharing where people can produce a product and they don't have to have this big building yet. So your biggest expense is always going to be brick and mortar. So start smaller. It doesn't have to be brick and mortar or nothing. And then you can, you can kind of progress into a business. But your business is always going to last longer and it's always going to be more productive and make money for you if it's built on a solid foundation uh, financially. And so for me, that's where I talk to what I talk to everybody about is start with what you can afford crowdfund and start with what you can afford. Don't overextend yourself. The people who are making money in business are people who are debt-free, not people who are carrying loads of debt. Absolutely. I think that's such, such good advice and also great encouragement for all of our listeners who, like you said, may be starting out a little bit different than you did, but every idea starts somewhere and um, hopefully it's something that a lot of people can overcome with all these great resources you shared. Thanks again for joining us. Come back in a couple weeks to hear Denisha's final episode about what advice she may have for other entrepreneurs. And don't forget to follow us on social media by searching Baylor Venturing Out. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.